Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women Today podcast, a roundup of some of our best bits from the past five days. And this week we've talked about the relevance of marriage in the 21st century. Are Joe's been hypnotised? We were joined live in the studio by Inspector Catherine Bradley and PC Louise Kenyuk, who really does look a little bit like Sue Perkins. And we also spoke to a descendant of one of the leading figures of the feminist movement, Dr. Helen Pankhurst. Emmeline Pankhurst is considered now as one of the icons of feminist leadership and as the leader of the suffragettes and the whole movement of uh, militant feminism. She is, I think, particularly interesting because of that, that wing. And then people are also very intrigued because the family had lots of splits and different views about how to go about ensuring change. So there's a lot of interest in that as well. And how exactly are you related in in amongst all this? So I'm um, Sylvia's granddaughter, Sylvia being Emmeline's second daughter. And Sylvia in particular had quite different views from Emmeline and Christabel, uh, Emmeline's oldest daughter. Sylvia and Adela, the younger daughter, remained much more left-wing and felt that women's The vote for women could be achieved through democratic rather than autocratic approaches in summary. You've clearly done quite a lot of research about your family. I just wondered how much you know about your Manx roots. I've always known that there was one and I know that Emmeline's mother came from the Isle of Man and that she used to go quite a lot and that actually the younger generation, i.e. Sylvia's generation, used to go as well. Um, I'd love to go sometime. I really, really would. Um, so it's, it's, it's on my list of things to do. I just need to make it happen. Oh, well, come over. We'll give you a tour. That sounds good. I'm on. <laughs> so how, how do you think you're following in, in the footsteps of, of your family name? I suppose there must be quite a lot of pressure being another Dr. Pankhurst. I could have avoided it. You know, I could have changed my name on marriage. I didn't want to. I, you know, for, for really t- reasons to do with wanting to continue the heritage and I also ensured that my kids in particular my daughter has the uh, the surname and you know she's also carrying on so it's been a choice wherever we could have hidden and pretended that we didn't have that legacy we I have always felt that it was important to continue to name the issues and um, continue to work because the world is still very unequal even just uh, around issues of political participation um, it's unequal but all aspects you know from violence against women to little derogatory terms to economic inequalities. Um, There's still so much to be done. And the other thing is I was born and brought up in Ethiopia, so I'm really interested in international feminism and development and the link between poverty and ongoing discriminations. And um, they are very clear. Do you think there was ever any chance of you not following that kind of (laughs) feminist route? Um, I don't know. I think that's a no. (laughs) No, you know, I've also found that it's a, it's a, it's a very minor point, but I, I look like them. You know, there are genetic traits that I inherited. So if there are visible genetic traits that I inherited, it wouldn't be at all surprising if uh, the kind of the passion and the belief in the issues are also passed down. You mentioned uh, growing up in Ethiopia and your interest in international politics. But what do you think are the, the biggest challenges we face in, in the UK and Great Britain and here on the Isle of Man? I would say there are two sides of the same coin, and it's to do with the one side is to to do with the lack of women in positions of authority and power. 
So in the leadership uh, politically, in leadership economically, in leadership, all sorts of ways of defining what society is about and how it changes. And the the, the, the other side of the coin is that they are predominantly the ones that are vulnerable to violence, to uh, exploitation, to um, social attitudes about what a woman looks like and therefore how important that is, to unpaid work. So it's the lack of power and the, it's all to do with power balances as far as I'm concerned. I know you know a little bit about the, uh, the discrepancy we have here on the Isle of Man when it comes to political equality or representation. I wondered how you think we should be countering that, how we should be hoping to improve our uh, female representation. Well, I, I mean, I read that um, the Isle of Man is the world's has the world's oldest continuously existing parliament. For me, you know, you're, therefore, it's so, so, so very important that this parliament, this symbolically important parliament, you know, forges the way in terms of um, equality. And, you know, that would be a fantastic heritage to have instead of being one of the countries and one of the aspects of the world where, you know, begrudgingly uh, your parliament is behind the time. So, you know, I think symbolically it's really important that things should change there. The how, um, I think, is by people um, standing out and being counted. You know, you can, everybody can say, oh, well, it's not my responsibility and, you know, I've got my life to live and so on. But I think if collectively people, uh, feminists, meaning men and women, kind of say, no, all of these things must change and we can make a difference, then then the world will change. We, we, we have to do it in our own backyard. Well, the film Suffragette is out on the 12th. Are you hoping this will kind of reignite some passion, I suppose? Yes, yes, I am. Because I think that it's impossible to go to the film, to watch it and not feel kind of, wow. I mean, what, the level of sacrifices, the level of suffering that those women, that the suffragettes and others, the film focuses on suffragettes, but there were so many people over the you know, millennia who've been on the receiving end of injustices. And, you know, there they were saying, no, enough is enough. And it's actually, I think what's powerful about the film is that it's, it's an everyday woman's experience. It's not a specific woman. She's a composite fictitious character, uh, Maud, the main person in the film. And it's her awakening to the fact that her life, the difficulties which she's kind of said, oh, well, you know, she just continued her life and just tried to ignore, that there comes a point where you just have to say, no, I'm not going to let that continue to happen to me and to others. And I can make a difference. I can make small differences. I can see one other girl who's suffering the same type of things as went through that I did, and I'm going to make a difference for her life, etc., etc. So I do think that it's, I think it's an incredibly powerful, moving film, enjoyable as, a, as, a, as an experience. It's not a kind of, it's not a documentary, it's not a, a do-goody type um, experience. You, you, just, you just go into that world as you're watching the film. It's, it's really powerful. But I think you also come out of it thinking, wow, you know, and there, is, there are still things to be done. As we've been hearing throughout the programme, our guest this afternoon, a head teacher of Williston Primary School, Rose Burton, and executive head teacher of the Linden Centre in Shropshire, Rachel Brown. We've been talking about young people and their behaviour. We're also joined now by Julie Slater from Williston School. And Rachel mentioned the FAST programme, which is something that is used at Williston School. Julie, can you tell us what that's all about? Okay, it's um, a system in conjunction with Middlesex University and Save the Children. And um, it's about good old family old-fashioned family values 
and it, um, it's a system that's run for eight weeks in schools by um, the parents, partners, community partners and school partners and it's to um, it empowers parents in a school environment where maybe parents might not have had a great experience with school it's bringing parents in and making them part of the school environment, making them confident and uh, yes So what was the idea Rose when um, you were first introduced to this I think it was what, May last year, you were introduced mm-hmm. by Rosemary Walters from Save the Children here in the Isle of Man mm-hmm. What made you think, do you know what, this is something that we really need to do? Well I've always felt passionate about engaging parents in children's education. There's so much research that says children achieve and are more stable if parents are involved. So it's something I've worked in since going to Williston to um, really increase the parental engagement in school. There's involvement and engagement. We had an awful lot of parents involved They'd come to discos, they'd turn up at the summer fair, but I'm talking real engagement in learning, and that's a completely different thing. So um, I heard about the FAST programme, which families and schools together, it involves the school and the family, not just the parent, the whole family working together. And couple that with my interest in engagement, hearing about this, it was a no-brainer really had to be done I had to you know as a school we had to take that leap of faith and say okay we're going to give this a try it ticks boxes didn't know what it was going to be like didn't know an awful lot about it just um, went for it so how has it actually worked then at Williston how do you implement this okay so initially It was a bit of a grey area, didn't know an awful lot, so I did some research, found out more about it and what the programme entails, and it is a very intensive prescriptive programme. So it goes through certain activities during the FAST programme, and it involves staying at school one night, evening a week, engaging families of children in the reception class, the whole family, they come back into school for one evening a week and they go through a series of very prescriptive activities. I mean, hopefully the parents don't know it's prescriptive, but we know it is. Can I just ask, this is for every child in the reception class, not just people with specific behavioural issues? Oh, absolutely. Every child it's offered to. Not all families take up on it. So we did a big song and dance sort of, you know, advertising it. And those parents who expressed an interest came on board. So for eight weeks after school on a Wednesday, we had teachers stayed behind. We enlist community partners, which um, are people who work in our community so we had a representative from the MSR we had somebody from the youth service we had the lady who works in the kitchen Julie our school administrator and then we enlist parent partners so parents within the school we had uh, three parents who were dedicated enough to come and train to run this program with us so after two days intensive training for all the people involved we set about running the programme. So we got the parents into school and we go from four o'clock till half past six. Now, when I was first reading about it, the bit that I thought in the programme, it says the parents cook a meal in school for 
everybody. Now I'm talking up to 20 families, so we're talking up to 40 to 50 people. One family cooking for 40 to 50 people in school? Okay, and we did it. And I was like Mrs. Overall going down the corridors in the evening with a trolley. And one of the most heartwarming moments for me was seeing on week two a family come up the yard with great big trays of food to serve for that evening. Because I thought it would never happen. And it happened. It really happened. What about families where there's a separation and the mum and dad maybe won't come together? How do you deal with that situation? Okay, well, there is no typical family. And we had grandparents. Charles come with grandparents. We had a great-grandma and four children on her own with her four children. We had mum and dad. We had just mum. We had... Did we have a just dad? don't think we had a just dad. No, we had a few, but, a few just mums. Yeah, there's, there's what is a family. There's loads of... So this went on for eight weeks. Mm-hmm. What difference have you seen at your school because of this then? Oh my gosh, how can I say? The engagement of the parents that took part in, part in this programme has been immense. You know, there, there is um, a fast wave... I can't show you on radio, unfortunately, but starts at one side of your body and it goes all the way to the other. In the playground, those parents who took part do the fast wave to each other. And it's just got that feeling of pulling people together. I've got a few quotes from some of the um, parents. Absolutely great introduction to school and community. I definitely recommend it to the new children in September think other members of the school were jealous and wished they were in the fast club it gave got me confident i definitely say to others to do it it's fun and i could go on and that was from parents and the children the children who were involved in it they they just became more engaged in school and in in their learning rachel so. brown how important would you say, listening to what Rose has been talking about, how important is it that we, we stop seeing home and school as separate entities and really, really do involve parents in the education of their children? It's absolutely fundamental and I'm just blown away by some of the things that Rose has been saying. Um, I, I, I think the, the best and um, the best intervention that you can give a child and their family is time and that is individually as a teacher as a school um, and as a short stay school as we are Um, I think without involving parents um, you're not going to have that behaviour change and actually it's such a positive programme all those parents that have had a negative experience at school are really willing to engage because actually somebody's believing in them and we forget sometimes that actually families really do want to be given a chance and they haven't been given a chance at school and they leave with that real negative sort of um, aura around them and this is an absolute opportunity for them to to come back into school and do something really positive so I'm blown away by it so much so I'm going to include it into into my next edition of the magazine as well and also when I go back to England um, actually share this with some of the schools I'm working with. You're terribly good at these links aren't you because let's talk about your magazine (laughs) now Rachel. Uh, What is this magazine? Um, It's a, a company I set up in April called Creative Inclusive it's been on my mind for um, several years actually 
Um, what I wanted to do was provide schools with a resource of um, information on the journey to outstanding behaviour within schools. So the first edition is all about peeling back the layers. It's understanding about brain development within children, understanding about early childhood trauma. It's got fantastic resources that we've used um, that really do work. Um, and the feedback from schools has been phenomenal. Um, I promoted this in the Isle of Man as well, um, and as well as in England. Um, so there's three three magazines a year um, it's an annual subscription and the second um, edition will be out in January and it'll be about um, including families in in, um, in the interventions we do and also um, ADHD and looking at attachment issues which is another whole area of, of fascinating um, and interesting um, behaviour intervention. Two schools I understand have signed up to the magazine already yes. is it just for schools or, or can parents get this as well? Um, parents can sign up to it but I would say it is really designed for schools. I have had a a couple of um, universities sign up in England for those universities that train teachers, which is great. Um, but I think, you know, as as the company grows, um, I think we will start putting out um, support information for parents because I think there is a huge need out there. Mm. And what we want to do as a company is really try to just offer as much support as possible to everybody to, to support them in behaviour change over a period of time. Well, Julie Sater, you, I understand, have just been away for two weeks training in Glasgow about how the FAST programme can be rolled out to other schools in the island. What's happening in that? Okay, well, at the moment we're going around schools and um, promoting it to the head teachers, and hopefully, we've got one school I think that's very definitely going to do it, and we're moving forward to get more schools. There's myself and um, Jane who are going around doing it. Um, the biggest problem, of course, is our fundraising for it, and um, we are at the moment in our own school at Williston raising funds we've got our Fast Works team which is the group that was set up after the Fast had finished its eight weeks and they're starting to raise funds for um, for it to go ahead and we've got our Christmas fair on the 4th of December get that plug <laughs> so, in um, and it'll, it'll be shown on our website and hopefully um, your, your site will show it as well we want to know if you think marriage still has a place in modern society. And the reason we're talking about this is because the TV presenter Chris Evans has told television viewers at the weekend that he certainly doesn't think so. On Channel 4's Sunday Brunch, he said, We began to get married 3,000 years ago, which is about the ownership of a woman by a man. And actually, as a model, it doesn't work at all anymore. Now, Chris is a dad of three. He wed his current wife, Natasha, eight years ago. He was also married to the singer-turned-actress Billy Piper for six years and Loose Women's Carol McGiffin for seven years. So does marriage still have a place in modern society or do you agree with what Chris Evans has said, that marriage is archaic and no longer has a place? Do let us know what you think. We've got some thoughts already. Uh, you can text in 166-177 or email womentoday at manxradio.com or go to the Women Today Facebook page. You can like the page and comment there or follow us on Twitter at MR Women Today. All right, Kate, does marriage still have a place in the 21st century? Yes, yes, I think it does. I think there is something within me that says it's really lovely for two people to kind of promise themselves to one another for the rest of their lives. I do get what Chris Evans is set, saying about it being kind of archaic and it, it definitely used to be about ownership you know the whole idea that your dad walks you down the aisle you're his property and then he gives you away and you're suddenly your husband's property I get that but I think we've moved on I think it's changed and I think marriage is seen as a much more equal joining of two separate people and two separate families so I think it does still have a place. Jo um, you've been really open about the fact that you are currently going through a divorce and 
I just wonder, has this changed your opinion of marriage at all? Um, yes, it has, to be frank, because when I set out to get married, um, my ex-husband and I, we did it rather quickly because his poor mother wasn't very well. She had liver cancer, so we decided to surprise her and get married. We planned it within seven weeks and suddenly got married. Um, and my daughter was 18 months old at the time, so we weren't uh, traditional in any way, obviously, at all. Um, but now that I'm going through a separation, I do believe that, you know, marriage... There's a place for it. However, I think in this day and age, we're literally just getting married so that we are part of a family as a unit altogether. I'm not so sure it's just about the husband and the wife. Um, at the moment, for instance, it's like, do I change my name or not? And I don't want to change my name really at the moment because it's my kid's name. So I just feel that um, would I get married again, I think is the question I would ask myself. And I'm not sure at this moment. I can never say never. Um, but I don't think there is a massive need to get married in this day and age. I, I really don't. Matt, are you are happily married. What do you think of the institution of marriage? Well, um, <laughs> I am four, well, four and a half years happily married. Happy married, just myself and my wife, really. So we didn't get married for any reason with kids or any. It was just a commitment to each other, really. So um, happily, is that the good answer? <laughs> um, what about this notion then, Kate? I mean, you talked about... Um, the idea of, of your dad giving you away. I mean, I don't know whether you've imagined a, a scenario where <laughs> one day you may get married. Have you imagined the dress and the flowers? Oh. One of my friends had her flowers pinned up on a board, a picture of them pinned up on her notice board before she'd even met someone. Well, I don't <laughs> want to terrify any you know, prospective suitors, but yes, I have imagined my wedding in quite a lot of detail, which Would... goes against so much of my, the rest of my personality. I think that's why I'm really surprised that you are so for it in some ways I mean would you have your dad giving you away yeah absolutely I think um I'm probably quite traditional when it comes to the idea of weddings and marriage because you know I have grown up with my parents have been together all my life um and I think they're the kind of marriage I look to and the fact that also my grandfather was a reverend um so I see that as as quite an important part of marriage my you know he actually married my mum and dad to each other um so I think I am I have the real traditional view of of what I would want my wedding to be like but I think maybe that's the problem is that so much of it goes around what the wedding's going to be like that we actually forget what's going to come for the rest of our lives after it. I think that's a really good point to make Kate is a lot of people put huge amount of pressures on this huge day that's going to happen I'm glad that mine was only seven weeks done and out of the way if I'm honest with you it wasn't a massive event it was an amazing day um, but Talking about kids, I that was one of the things that hurt me most um, when we were getting separated because my parents are still together. They've been together for, oh, oh I'm going to get in trouble because actually I can't tell time. you how many just years. It's just a long time. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're amazing together as well. They've been through ups and downs, but they are still together. And I think that's one thing that I felt was that I'd completely failed because we were separating. I felt like my parents get through their ups and downs. Why couldn't we do it? And I felt like a total failure for my kids, actually, because I felt that they should have two parents together, still together, um, for the rest of you know their lives, like I've got. Um, however, I also am pleased that they're seeing it from another point of view, where a separation can happen because two people aren't meant to be together, but they can be amicable at the same time. Like we're all having Christmas Day together, you know, it can be done. I think also at the moment um, and over the last few years, we've seen a huge rise in in couples that are living together for a really really long time, perhaps all of their lives, without seeing or feeling any need to kind of enshrine it in in 
law. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that marriage has to be about you as individuals and what works for you and what is going to be there to support you, as you say, through those ups and those downs. It's interesting, I think, that we're having this conversation at the same time as the debate surrounding gay marriage is going on around the island. Um, And I wonder if that just suggests that people do still care about the sanctity of marriage. Yeah, you're right. So again, another very good point to make. And I think that, you know, there is obviously this need to want to be married. But I think also it's the fact that they should actually be just be able to give them the choice. You know, a lot of gay couples out there may not even get married, but actually they're just quite happy that to know that if they wanted to, they could. Okay, we've got some uh, thoughts from you on this. Let's take a few of those now. Uh, Somebody's texted in to say it's always people who have failed marriages or who are not happily married that have bad things to say about marriage. I'd say that's uh, (laughs) probably a fairly good point. Um, How Chris Evans only said that because he is bitter and something else. Anyone with two broken marriages would think that. We've had one from Susie on Facebook who uh, who kind of echoes that sentiment. She says, as opposed to a woman being owned by her father. Oh, please. Chris Evans has got a book to sell. Top Gear to present. And TFI Friday is coming back. Does he need any more of this narcissistic self-promotion? I uh, had a really interesting email to say, marriage is difficult. In an ideal world, marriages are not easy. Nothing is easy. When you first enter into one, you never expect to get divorced. The worst stress on a marriage is getting a home, bills and having children children, losing the sex life, and some people simply grow apart. Some people get closer, but everyone is different. For a man, it's hard with the stress of feeling they have to provide every month, and also for a woman, the housewife, the life of bringing children up and losing their freedom and independence, etc. It's a hard question. I think Chris Evans is no role model, though. Marrying a 16-year-old was never going to last. Nowadays, it's not important to get married. When you separate, you still have the same issues to face. All marriages now is a name change, so kids all feel part of one family. That's it. And Frank says, why get married? You never buy a book when there's a library down the road, do you? Women Today, brought to you by City Wing for your next flight away. Now then, when I say the word hypnosis, I'm going to assume that many of you will get quite a specific image in your mind. Now for Kate, it's someone waving a watch in front of your face. Uh, For me, it's probably those stage acts which get people to do some pretty outlandish things. But I think the reality is really something that's quite different and our guest today is going to be explaining that. Sue Chalmers... We've told you some of our first impressions. How do people generally react when you tell them what you do? Um, Well, I don't really tell that many people. I keep it to myself, that side of things. Um, Most people will say, I won't look into your eyes then because you'll make me give you all my money. That's what they usually say. Why don't you tell people what you do? Um, Well because it it stimulates a discussion and then they start telling me their problems and what they'd like to get you know sorted and before I know where I am I'm you know taking up the whole of the time in Marks and Spencers or wherever it happens to be explaining myself so I don't. So what is the difference then between a hypnotist and a hypnotherapist which is what you are? A hypnotist anybody can hypnotize somebody else But a hypnotherapist, you have to have um, uh, a sort of a deeper understanding of human nature to be able to um, help people with their issues and problems. Um, But a hypnotist is just somebody who puts you in an altered state. What do you think of those stage hypnotists? Because I'd imagine maybe if, from your point of view, that you might think they have... 
I don't know, a negative impact on your profession? No, they don't. In fact, quite the reverse. I mean, the thing is, that's how that's where it all started, didn't it? I mean, it started with stage hypnotists and... Um, you know, some of them are really skilled people, or most of them are. If you think, you can stand up in front of an audience like that and bring people on stage and hypnotise them. Um, you know, it's quite fascinating to watch, and I've had it done to me, uh, which is where I first got the idea to do it. Um, so, no, I think, you know, it's for entertainment, and as long as you realise it's for entertainment, and, you know, um, when you come to see me, you've usually got an issue anyway of some description... So, no, I think they're very good. I don't want to be sort of clichéd, but I really do want to ask you now, could you make me give you all my money? No. OK, just checking. Um, I'd like to. I'd like to think I could. <laughs> I'd like to think I had that power, but no. Your career, I mean, in your own words, has always been focused on other people and specifically the personal development of other people. Now, you originally, Sue, started out as a nurse. You then became a health visitor. What were those years like? Well, they were mostly quite boring, really. I mean, if I have to be honest, it's one of those things where there's pockets of interest. Um, but if I hadn't had those years, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be. I, w I don't think I'd be able to um, to do what I do now without having had those. And I did, um, I did coaching and counselling after that as well. So it kind of followed on, if you like. But the early years of just um, health visiting and, and nursing were a little bit boring really when I think about it it's only in retrospect of course at the time it didn't seem like that and what made you give that up specifically I know you went on to coaching but was there a specific reason where you thought do you know what I'm done with this uh, no I just moved into it really I just there wasn't no because I don't think that deeply about it I just thought oh that looks interesting I'll try that which was the coaching and it was really new at the time and um, and I liked the idea of being at home and not having to get dressed and go out and meet people. You could just do it on the telephone. And um, I liked that, and it worked. And you'd meet people from America and things like that, and they were interesting. You know, it got me outside the Isle of Man, if you like. But after a while, I thought, no, it's time to get back into the... It's time to get dressed, really. I thought I'd better clarify, you are uh, talking about life coaching, not some sort of sports coaching, then? No, no, it was life coaching. And so um, what sort of things were you coaching people about? I mean, you say you were at home in your in your jammies the same the things the same similar problems um i was a, i was a, um when i think back about it now i should have specialized in in one area and i didn't and it was uh, they there were people who have issues that they couldn't move on in their lives um so it is all about personal development it was personal development and it could be job related um something that go, was going on with their family or everything you know so you thought then you should get dressed should get out more yeah how did you come to find hypnotherapy which you say is your true niche in life it is really because I'm a control freak and I like the idea of having that you know I tell you when it first came to me was when I was uh, a nurse on intensive care and all the patients were on ventilators so they had their eyes shut and you know you could tend them or um, do things to them and you didn't have to talk to them you know or you didn't have to serve them meals or anything and I remember thinking it's like they're hypnotized and then the idea came to me later on and um, it was that I don't know delving deeper if you like it was the idea that you could 
delve deeper into somebody's mind and that it was quick and I'd done counselling before that um, and all that seemed to be doing was talking about it and never getting to the point whereas with hypnosis you get in there you sort the problem out and out again how difficult was it for you to embark on a what was really a career change in your 50s well it wasn't really because um you know I, money wasn't a big issue there by that time um because i'd remarried um a few years before um and fortunately i had somebody who was willing to keep me while i <laughs> while i did all this so uh it wasn't really such a huge issue you know to change because it was it's really just an extension of what i've always done which was about personal development when i think back about it so it wasn't really a big it was and it was interesting doing the course as well going to london meeting different people and then going to the states when i did the past life regression so it, i didn't think it was difficult at the time really looking forward to finding out more about this a little bit later sue but just how do you know this works. I mean, you sound so convincing when you say, you know, hypnosis gets in there, it sorts the problem out. How do you know it can do that? Well, because I've been doing it now for about, um, what are we now, two thousand? I must have been doing it for about 15 years. And I've seen such uh, transformations over the years um, after just one session. You know, so I do know it works. You know, it's been proved to me. And there's times when I think this isn't going to work. You know, when somebody comes in and I think, oh, they're just not going to be susceptible to this. And it just works. OK, I'm stood outside Sue Chalmers' house and I'm about to go in and have some hypnotherapy done for my pain that I'm receiving. Um, after fracturing my ankle and also back pain, I thought I would try and see if it relieves the pain. And if I'm honest, I'm actually feeling a little bit nervous because I've got no idea about what's about to happen to me. And I'm supposed to be going out this evening. And uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure what state I'm going to be in, if I'm going to be hypnotised. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really interested in seeing if it actually really will help to relieve the pain. Um, I'm sure that just one treatment won't be enough, but we'll see. Uh, so I'm just heading in and I'll let you know how I get on. Hi, Sue. I'm so looking forward to this. Oh, good. So Where's where are we going? going? No, just upstairs now, so just follow me. Well, just in a lovely, lovely warm room above um, Sue's garage. And, oh, there's a sparkly little tree. It's almost like a Christmas tree, Sue, but immediately... It is Christmas tree. <laughs> it feels really warm and really cosy and really welcoming. Um, okay, Sue, so I've come to you today for some hypnotherapy, and I presume you're just going to tell me a little bit about what it's about and what's going to happen. So um, what have you come with? That's the first thing. So I have pain in my ankle and also in my back. I recently fractured my ankle and I'm still receiving pain from it. Oh, really? And sprained really ligaments sore. too is sore. Um, okay, so if it's pain, pain gets worse the more you think about it and the, more, and the longer you experience it. So it would just be uh, gentle relaxation because this is your first visit. So it'll be more about relaxation and changing the way you feel about your body, really. How does that sound? Does that sound a bit weird? Uh, and um, yeah, it's kind of like change, slightly changing your mind. It is a bit like mind control in a way, but it's control, you controlling your mind, not me controlling it. I must point that out. 
So what is the process? What, what's going to happen to me? You're not going to get me walking around doing anything funny, are you? No, 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 no. You'll just lie in the chair, relax, and I'll talk to you. Lovely. I'm looking forward to it already. Take a deep breath in. And as you breathe out, just gently close your eyes. That's right. And just unclasp your hands because they can become very heavy and tight. And just now become aware of your breathing. And that's fine. And there's no need to consciously change it. Just allow it to ebb and flow as you find your own steady rhythm. Knowing that with every outbreath, you relax more and more as we go on. Well, I might be slurry, a little bit slurry, because I was fighting it so much at the beginning that this is never going to work for me. I was really, really struggling for it. And um, your voice, Sue, is incredible. And counting me through, going into deeper relaxation, I really felt the levels going, but it, I was still fighting it. And it's not until the end, when you're counting me coming back up into life, I would say, that you then realize the depth of relaxation that you've had. I feel like I've had a night's sleep and I've had a 30 minute treatment, about, 30, about half an hour treatment, and I felt like I've had a whole night's sleep. It's just so relaxing and I feel incredibly at peace. Um, Pain-wise, I can't feel the pain that was there so strong before, um, but I'm sure it's not an instantaneous thing. I'm sure over the next few hours, I may, I may even feel that relief. So, um, yeah, but right now, I feel incredibly relaxed. I don't feel in as much pain, um, but it's done much more for me than what I would imagine. We are talking this afternoon to two female police officers, uh, Inspector Catherine Bradley and PC Louise Kenyuk. Now, earlier, um, Lou, you were talking uh, about the blog you've been writing, and I just wonder, Catherine, how you felt when you first read it. Um, Had she read it? Have you read it? Yes. (laughs) Just putting you on the spot there, no fighting. To me, it actually, knowing Lou, as I have done for 17 years, it was Lou if that makes sense Um, and that's the best way that I can describe it she wasn't trying to be somebody she's not she wasn't trying to pretend the job is anything that it isn't what you saw is Lou so what you see is what you get and it it does capture um, it it does capture what we have to do on on a day-to-day basis Um, and it, it was really Lou's motivation to, to do that, building on the work the constabulary's done um, in the use of social media. Let's talk about that in just a moment. But Lou, did you have to run it past anyone first to make sure you were allowed to do it? Yeah, I did ask Guy Roberts. Um, I sent him a private message. <laughs> I'm actually technically an out when it comes to Facebook and Twitter. Um, so everything I do, I think as we get older on, we want to try things and, and push our limits and boundaries. So I started kind of using Twitter and Facebook um, so I sent him a little message basically saying, have you got any issues? And he said, no, go for it. 
So for that, I think I think Mr. Roberts has known me since I was very, very young. Uh, I lived on the same street as him. So I think he knows me enough and he knows that I'm not one out to make a name for myself. And I will be truthful and honest, but not to the detriment of anyone. So if I'm writing things um, that I think perhaps may not offend, may be contentious, like the, the woman uh, blog I did recently... I asked for his permission to use pieces that he'd written uh, and if he'd say it was okay. And he does, he trusts me, which is nice, a nice position to be in. Well, let's talk about social media then, because I mean, it's more than fair to say that the Isle of Man Constabulary has really changed its approach to social media over the past few years. Catherine, how conscious was that decision? It was very conscious. Um, it, it was um, driven by the Chief Constable, Mr Roberts, that, that Lou has spoken about because there was a recognition that social media is here to stay and it's only actually going to get bigger and and develop and we view it as an area to police no different to patrolling the streets of south like Lou does or douglas like i do so it was the recognition that we needed to offer a service there and um We've been very fortunate that having the Chief Constable drive it forward, the constabulary has taken it on board um, and, and embraced it. Um, and we get an awful lot of positive feedback. Um, but also when things haven't gone right and, and people tell us about it, it's that instantaneous, you have it there, you have it then. And it's like anywhere, it, there are good side parts to it and there are, there are not so good parts to it, but... Yeah, it's here. It's here to stay. Um, I'm like Lou. I'll hold my hands up. I'm, I was the ultimate technophobe Luddite who couldn't see the benefits of it at all when it first started. Um, I'd never been on Facebook. I'd never been on Twitter. Um, and now it's it's an integral part of how we how we police. And it's certainly there are lots of them. There are lots of outlets for the police. You know, we've got Isle of Man Constabulary to Tweetbeat to area specific mm-hmm. ones. Why are there so many? It's it's to capture the, the needs of different areas, really, because what goes on the South Page is a bit, generally is of interest to the people that are in the south of the island, and they will follow that. They have absolutely no interest in what's going on in Douglas or Peel or Ramsey. So it's to deliver a service to that community um, just as part of our neighbourhood policing and then obviously the central media page to to update people on the media stuff and then Tweetbeat... Um, is that we're here, we're the bobby on the beat. It's just another way of communicating with us. I suppose it's still fair to say that not everybody is on Facebook, not everybody is on Twitter. So what's done to, to make sure that they're not missing out? Well, that's it's about blending the online service that we can provide with what we call the traditional policing service. So we have police officers that are on patrol. You can still contact us via phone. Um, so it's about managing the two. And what we have found is there are an awful lot of people in the community and this is actually the way that they access the service from the police. Um, even if it's what they do is they follow us, they know what's going on and it brings it brings them reassurance, which I think perhaps showed maybe a lack of understanding on our part that there were some people out there that perhaps wouldn't um, be able to access our services another way. I imagine there are downsides there and I think we've all seen the times when the police have reported something happening and people comment on it and sometimes those comments are well they're not great and I just wonder how you feel about that I mean it's a very 
very public criticism sometimes. I, absolutely, and people have a right and they will have their views and their opinions for, for lots of reasons. But actually, it, we might not know about that the other in another you know in other way or, or otherwise therefore actually if we become aware of it we can then respond to it some of it's unfair but some of it's fair and also when it came to the burglaries and we're mm. saying about um, social media mm. and at times that really wasn't very helpful because mm. I know suddenly it came mm. to a point where it was like let's not discuss this on social mm. media is mm. that right absolutely we, we there was there's a, there's a use for it, but it has to be carefully mm. used sometimes. And, and sometimes it's hard to explain to public why, because it's about trust and why we suddenly are all out there, then suddenly we have to control it. But we kind of had to, because sometimes we'll go to a job, and then before we've even left the house, someone has then put that out on social media. So my investigation can be mm. gone as soon as I walk out of the house. So that's why we have to educate the public that, yes, it's useful, but it has mm. to be controlled and agreements between us and them almost. And people start chasing cars because they think yes. they've seen a car and suddenly yeah. the Isle of Man is doing the police's job. Yeah, so it's it has to be controlled, I think, is the word, carefully. Well, there was a, another post that springs to my mind amongst all this, and it was, I think, if, I, if I'm right in talking about this, it was during TT and it got a lot of attention. It showed the picture of a man who was suspected of walking on closed roads. And again, if I remember correctly, it was later announced that he'd done it for kind of OK reasons. I think it just struck me when I saw this online and I saw the comments and I saw how easy it was to share an image of somebody else that the police has put out in the first place that you have to be incredibly careful, surely, mm -hmm. not to kind of inspire a witch mm -hmm. hunt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How, how, how do you measure that, I suppose? It, it does need monitoring, as Lou rightly said, and, um, and that's the hard bit sometimes is you can, you're putting something out and then making sure you've got the time and the ability to then monitor it for that very reason. And as you mentioned about the car, um, and, and when we had a potential incident uh, earlier on when they thought they'd identified somebody and all sorts of bits and pieces. Um, but actually, what you then also find is that the, the public almost then polices itself a lot on social media, and certainly with the burglaries, um, we found there was then a lot of support from from the public. So it is it's that it's that balance it's that balancing act. Um, but it, again, it's it would be easy from a policing point of view to say, look, it, it, it's too risky, it's too difficult to do. Let's not go there, um, and we'll just carry on doing it as we've always done it. But we can't do that. Society changes, technology changes. Everybody's phone is a, is a computer. We're in a twenty-four hour society, and um, so we have to to move with with it and embrace it. Can't say we always get it right. We'll be the first to hold our hands up, but um, we do do our best. And certainly, there's been an investment from the constabulary in making sure that staff are trained so that we are clear about what's expected of us, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, um, and that, that includes off-duty use as well as on-duty for obvious reasons. I think I think that's very much about kind of us watching you and what you're putting online. I just wonder then how much are you looking at those comments and looking at who's been tagged and perhaps having a little Facebook stalk yourself and using it as an investigative tool. You sound like you're speaking from experience there, Kate Holland. I know a lot about you, Joe, and not all the stuff you've told me. Oh, scary! <laughs> But do you though? Do you go and, and, and Facebook stalk someone? What, what we have to bear in mind is there's many strands to an investigation. You you get information, intelligence, uh, stuff that will su 
support you and social media on occasions can can play a part in that exactly the same as using cctv forensic evidence house to house inquiries it just becomes part of an in, in, an investigation um, be it we put something out because we're looking for somebody or sort of after the event that's an interesting one you're raising about looking for someone because sometimes there are particularly young people who may go missing for various reasons. Mm. It might happen more than once. And I suppose that's the sort of thing that worries me. You see the comments that some people mm. put on about, oh, them again. And it kind of really belittles yeah. what that individual person's going through and what those people connected mm. to them are going through. Yes, but again, we can't always legislate for what other people choose choose to put on. But it can be a, be a very, very powerful tool when people are missing because... We are still fortunate the majority of the, the community of the Isle of Man are very supportive of what we do and, and actually want to help people. So it would almost be like cutting our nose off to spite our face then to not use it because there will always be keyboard warriors. Is, is every <laughs> post then that weighing up of the pros and yeah, cons? It's, it's a bit like, I mean, Catherine was alluded to there, so where we get the negative side sometimes on that, that's a little bit mm. why I'm blogging. So they... People are allowed to say what they want to a degree, but if I can then see someone counteract it by being honest and say, well, actually, that's it, then it's trying to get that balance and control back, and that's the important part. But it's about giving everyone the freedom, but in a managed way. Thanks, as always, to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page, and you can comment there, or you can follow us at MR Women Today on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.